Hello, everyone, and welcome to the first ever episode of Pirate Recap presented by WSOU Sports. On this podcast, we'll be breaking down the previous seasons from all of your Seton Hall athletics teams. Today's episode, we're starting off with the men's and women's basketball team. It's going to be a great episode. My name is Joe Matthews, and I'm joined alongside my fabulous, as always, co-hosts, Heaven Hill and Jonathan Heights. So before we get into breaking down these past seasons for the men's and women's basketball teams, I got to ask you guys, how are you doing today? I am doing phenomenal, Joe. I'm like we've talked about off air. I'm so excited to finally have this idea that I had about three months ago finally come to life. And I'm just so thrilled to be able to do it with you guys. And we're gonna have a great show. Yeah, man, same here. I'm, I'm super thrilled to do this. Uh, I think this is important, you know, to have something like this where we sort of reminisce on, you know, highlights from, from last year. You know, a couple months from now, the seasons are gonna start up again. We'll have soccer and volleyball and basketball right around the corner. So it's always important to, to have something like this, you know, just to, to look back, you know, give the previous team their season you know, to, to, to reflect on. So this is fun. Absolutely. It's going to be an incredibly fun podcast and an incredibly fun episode more, more, more in particular. And so we're going to get started right away. First talking about the men's team for Seton Hall basketball this previous season. It was not exactly how it was anticipated and hoped that the season would go for the Pirates this year. But nevertheless, a pretty successful season. They finished 14 and 13 overall, 10 and 9 in the Big East Conference, which placed them fifth. They just narrowly missed the NCAA tournament. They were a bubble team and got knocked off towards the end of the year, which we'll discuss in just a little bit. But as we look back and sort of recap the season, my mind gets brought back to the very beginning of the season where the Pirates, they actually got off to a pretty nice start. And at around the halfway point of the season, they were sitting at eight and four overall. And so with that in mind, you know, through that first 12 game stretch where they were sitting heavily above 500, I want to ask you guys, what were your sort of takeaways from those beginning games of the year? And, you know, what was letting the, the, the Pirates really play great basketball and leading them to wins? Yeah, Joe, that honestly felt like an eternity to go after what happened throughout the, the rest of the season, especially at the end with the Big East tournament. But the, some of the takeaways that I had specifically was obviously I remember they started off against Louisville. They had the just brutal one-point loss to start the season off where things couldn't have really – they definitely could have had some room for improvement. They ended up winning at home against Iona. That was a good win at home just to, to get the ball rolling against Rick Pitino. Losing to Rhode Island, you saw the offense kind of get cold here and there. That was a 76-63 to 63 loss. Losing to number uh, 21 at the time, Oregon, I remember being the beat reporter for that game. And obviously, I remember we've seen Hall play pretty well, and the offense was there. But Oregon was obviously just the better team. They had some some great players, and they just shot incredibly well across the board. Um, but the big game that I want to highlight from that stretch that where I saw this kind of the team blossom and kind of get into full gear and shake off all the rush from the previous offseason was that 98-92 overtime win against Penn State. And that was a game where it was their, their comeback. They had had a comeback that big, I think, in about 14 years. I think it was 2007. They trailed, I think, 19 points. They ended up going for 50 second-half points. Mamo, that was one of his best games as a Pirate. Yeah, I think he had 30 points. And that game, I think, kind of set the tone for the first half of the season where there were a lot more positives than negatives. You know, we had the Wagner win after beating St. John's a couple weeks later, Marquette. You know, losing to Providence 80-77, to that was a tough game, obviously, but that was very winnable. 
Um, but then a couple of wins, Big East wins after that, excuse me, against Xavier and Butler. The first half of the season, we were, I remember for us at the station, we were feeling very confident about the Pirates and being able to make, you know, a run in the Big East tournament, hopefully the NCAA tournament, after seeing what COVID did to the team with Miles Powell and such, that got just the season um, postponed and everything and canceled, excuse me. But I, through that eight and four stretch, there were many positives and the offense was there. The defense was clicking and we saw almost, again, Sandro Mamakilish really turn into the star that he was becoming while being the number two option to Miles Powell. He became the star. We saw Jared Roden become the number two to him. And Miles Kale almost with games where Roden would go maybe 2A and 2B. So I think their roles were defined. And during that first half of the season, I think it was very confident and very a lot of positive to take away from that. Yeah, I would say I shared the the, the same sentiment. I mean, like the, the entire lead up to the season, you know, the the biggest question was who would step up and, and help Sandra Mamukelashvili, you know, who would become the Robin to his Batman? You know, in, in the previous season, it was Miles Powell in that Batman role. And we saw what he would do, you know, just a vacuum offensively. He was taking up, you know, just so many touches and, and scoring so much down the stretch, like losing that from your offense is a big blow. But as we saw, you know, the last few games of the season, Mamu was putting up big numbers left and right. And people were like, okay, this guy could be, you know, the, the best guy on a tournament team. But the biggest question was who would step up and become his, his, his running mate. And first game of the season against my Cardinals, uh, Jared Roden, I believe he shot like three for 12 that game. And it was like, okay, this, you know, junior year now, we should be seeing a little bit more from him. And then in that game against Iona, which I believe was the next game after that, he came out and just started cooking. You know, that was as a result of the Baylor game getting canceled. I think the Bears, there was some sort of COVID issues within the program, but scheduled a game against Rick Pitino and Iona. And Roden had one of those games where it was like, man, this guy, hold on, we might have something here. You know, so from there, it was obviously, like Jonathan mentioned, the loss at Rhode Island, which is, you know, just a, a tough place to play in against Fats Russell and that team. Oregon, uh, although the Pirates only lost by 13 points, they really should have lost by about 20 plus. Like, Seahaw Hall hit 14 threes in that game, which I think if that wasn't a, a program record, it was pretty darn close. Like, Oregon was just shooting the skin off the ball. The Pirates couldn't get a stop. Their threes was really the only thing that kept them in it, you know, kept it from looking, you know, less embarrassing. But from there, uh, like Jonathan mentioned, it was that huge comeback against Penn State. And then the Pirates just rattled off just a, a streak. I believe during that stretch from the Penn State game to their home game against Butler, I believe that's seven wins in eight games with their only loss coming at home against Providence on a, a game winner. Um, so it was just a, a, a lot of, of questions being answered. You know, Roden stepped up big time. The Pirates were getting contributions from their transfer to Cole Molson. Sandra Mamakelishvili was having those games where it was like, man, this guy could be the best power forward in the country. Like, he just looked like that. Uh, Jonathan mentioned the comeback against Penn State as, you know, that big game where fans felt like, you know, this team really had it going for them. I'm looking at the, the road game against Marquette as that deciding factor for me. Now, 
Marquette, their season might have, you know, unraveled a little bit down the stretch as they finished under 500. But at the time, you know, that early in the season, they had already had a victory against Wisconsin and Creighton. Both of those teams were, were top 10 at the time. So it was like, whoa, you know, the, these guys, they might be pretty serious. You know, once the Pirates go on the road and get that victory against a team that just knocked off two top 10 teams, it was like, wow, this, you know, Seton Hall, you know, without Miles Powell, it, it still might be pretty formidable. So early in the season, eight and four record, seven wins in eight games, you know, the comeback against Penn State and that road win against Marquette, taking care of business at home against St. John's and Georgetown. It, it was very encouraging to say the least. Yeah, I think encouraging is absolutely the right word for how that season started. And, you know, a game that stood out to me in that stretch that, I mean, I want kind of want to touch on it then. And actually, you know, Jonathan talked about he was the beat writer for that Oregon game. I was the beat writer for the game against uh, Wagner when they just absolutely routed the Seahawks. And to me, that actually, you know, looking at it in just the box score, it was a 78 to 45 win for Seton Hall. And it, 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 at first glance, it kind of just seems like, and okay, that's just, they beat up on a, on a team that they should beat. Nothing really special to come out of it, but there's a big thing that, that, that stood out to me, which was, you know, in terms of you guys talked about the, the Pirates needed to see who could step up and fill the role outside of uh, Sandro to, uh, you know, take the next step on this team. And in that game against Wagner, Mongo actually got ejected around probably like halfway through the game, finished the game with, you know, six points, only played 19 minutes. And so that was a very easily could have been a sort of a trap game for the Pirates, you know, their best player goes out due to an injection. They, you know, are playing a team that they really should be, but, you know, maybe they just, you know, over underestimate their abilities and, you know, get, get caught in a tough loss. But two guys stepped up in that game big. One Roden, like you said uh, earlier, he had a 22.11 rebound game, shot six of nine from the field. But more importantly, Iko Biagu had probably his best game of the year. He dropped 20 points on 100% from the field. He went 12 for 15 from the free throw line, which was just absolutely monster numbers. So that, again, was just a really, really encouraging game, you know, to see the other pieces outside of Mamu, who we knew was going to be the leader and could really take over for this team. We saw everybody on that team stepping up and contributing in a big way. So like you guys said, absolutely an encouraging start to the year. But now I want to touch on just a little bit after that sort of big time winning streak, you know, solid stretch where there were three games for the pirates that I can only classify them as just absolutely heartbreaking where they had a pretty tough, you know, three game stretch where they played number three Villanova twice and number 17 Creighton who, you know, ranked opponents in the big East ahead of Seton hall in the big East standings. And in those three games, they started off against Nova and they suffered a two-point loss. And then they went to Creighton and they suffered a four-point loss. And then they got Villanova again and lost only by eight. So three single-digit losses, all games that were real close and down to the wire. And they just couldn't pull it out in any of those three games, which would have been huge, huge wins for this Seton Hall team. So I kind of want to just ask you guys, you know, sort of break down how those games went down and, you know, had, you know, they pulled out that first win against Villanova where they lost 76 to 74, you know, how could that have changed this trajectory of the season for them? Man, it was just, it was just so 
debilitating to 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 be on that that Villanova game, the two point loss. It was like, okay, I mean, I'm gonna go in order, like like you asked, Joe. So the initially, you know, heading into this stretch of the schedule, it was like, okay, this this is the the chunk where you know one of these wins can not only be a resume builder, but it's a test to see where you stand against, you know, two of the best teams in the country. You know, as we saw Creighton, they made it to Sweet 16. Villanova had a pretty good run as well in the tournament. So that first game, January 6th, on the road at Creighton, Coach 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 Willard puts to Cole Molson in the starting lineup. And I think the Blue Jays were up 40 at that point, or at 40, or up 40 at some point in the game. It was just super dejecting. Uh, I think Wilner Lewis and Ronnie Jerez were on whole line for that one. And I was the engineer. And then at one point, they weren't even talking about the game, post-game. They were just talking about unis or whatever. Like it was just, it was just sad. But bounce back, get the road win at DePaul. Nothing to brag about, even though the Pirates almost sold that game too. Cancel game against Xavier. So now you got 10 days off from the DePaul game to road game at Nova. Keep in mind the Pirates won at Nova last year. So it was just it was bound to be just a lot of energy, a lot of emotion. And it was just like, it was just so back and forth. I will say like being on color with Dalton Allison in that game, one of the best experiences of my life because those last four or five minutes or so, just just hopping in and out and, and going in sync with his calls was just superb. But from a fan perspective, like I would have needed like a, a ventilator of some sort because that game was not good for my blood pressure. It was just so many plays back and forth down the stretch. I mean, it felt like the Pirates had the win. It felt like the Pirates, you know, were right there on the doorstep, you know, inches away from uh, what was going to be a a massive resume booster. And then it just, like, so unfortunate. You know, the Pirates were called for a, a loose ball foul late, and then to Cole Molson, you know, the former high school quarterback, threw an absolute dime to Sandro, like 90 feet from end to end. And then he unfortunately missed the layup. So it was just like that game, it was a roller coaster to say the least. And then the Creighton game at home had a chance to be the Bryce Aiken game. You know, people kept calling him Mr. Glass and, you know, this and that, you know, all the critics were just hounding him, you know, for not being what he was supposed to be, you know, since transferring from Harvard. And, you know, yes, he was injury prone, but the the biggest thing that I wanted to see was him adding that scoring punch next to Shavar Reynolds all season that I knew he could offer. And that game, 21 points, seven for 10 from the field, he hit three threes. Like it was just so inspiring to watch. And I I think the Pirates were up, I want to say, 16 at one point I'm looking now yes they were up 16 about 12 minutes left in the second quarter and then from there I mean the wheels pretty much fell off again credit to Creighton they were a sweet 16 team for a reason Mitch Balak and and Zagorowski and and Denzel Mahoney Damian Jefferson like that was just a super tough squad but again when you're on the doorstep of a resume boosting win and then that happens, it, it's it's really heartbreaking, to say the least. And then you get a chance to redeem yourself at home against Nova. And 
I don't think the Pirates ever led in that one. It seemed like they were just trying to claw their way back the entire game. And and credit to, to Nova, you know, when the Pirates came out in the second half and they shot, you know, phenomenally compared to the first half, put up 45 points in the second, Villanova only got outscored by two in the entire second period. Like their offense was just as good, you know, so the Pirates – you know, that they couldn't get stops. Defense is supposed to be, you know, one of the calling cards in this team. Their offense would, would fall short. And and it was just really unfortunate, to say the least, you know, that you had three opportunities. You had three bites of the apple to get a, a ranked win in, in some capacity. And you lost all of them, two of them, you know, in pretty heartbreaking fashion. So, yeah, man, that, that stretch of the season, morale was, was very low at the radio station. Yeah, you couldn't have said any better, Heaven. Um, I mean, we're going to talk about all the flaws that this team had last season. I think a lot of them were exposed during this four-game stretch. And since, Heaven, you touched upon the first and the last game, which the first game, again, was a no contest. They had no shot in that game. And the last game, Villanova just dominated. I'll just focus on the, the middle two games, which were two very winnable games. And I'll get to in a second, the Creighton game was – I think even more of a heartbreaker just for me personally, just the fact that the amount of points they scored and the leads they had in that game was just really hard to see them blow that by the end of the game. But that 76 to 74 loss to Villanova, I mean, obviously college basketball, I guess the best way to put it sometimes, it's a game of runs where whatever team has more runs in a game is going to end up winning. And the Pirates in that game had, they had to, they overcame like nine point leads and, um, I know Mamu had a 23-point game. Roden had a big, big first half, I remember from that. And the first half, the, the teams combined for like 13 three-pointers or something like that. So obviously they were both shooting the cover off the ball and both were shooting scoring at will. But then, again, because it's a game of runs, Nova had a 14-5 to run with, I think, about seven minutes left. And that's what kind of put them on track to win for a time until big shot Chavar had, I think, seven straight points to kind of cut the game down a little bit. And then after the loose ball call, obviously, that was the, the, the icing on the cake for Villanova to win that game. It was just so brutal to watch. I think Cole Swire just hit one free throw, and that was it. And then, obviously, the Pirates lost that game. But let me talk about the Creighton game, which, in my opinion, was the most devastating loss of the year, um, besides, obviously, the Georgetown game in the Big East uh, tournament. But this game should have been a win just across the board. You finally have Bryce Aiken, who has had a target on his back since he's 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 come to South Orange, excuse me, for being, like you said, having made a glass, always hurt. With the games he has played, he hasn't meshed in the offense, which I think is really unreasonable for him to fully mesh when he's never playing. For any player, it's hard to mesh onto a team when you're never playing and you're not really, you know, developing the chemistry with your fellow stars. So obviously it was going to take him some time. But in that game, having 21 points in 18 minutes, we kind of saw some glimpses that we were dying to see all season. And again, in that lead, in that game, excuse me, Miles Kale, he hit like three straight threes at one point. The Pirates were up 68 to 52 with 12 minutes left. They led as much as a 16, but then Creighton, again, went on a 14 to two run. And a big flaw that I'm going to point out right now, and I'll touch back on it later, that the Pirates had in these games was their lack of, or just poor perimeter defense. Because these teams, especially these better teams, would absolutely light them up from behind the arc. In this game, Creighton shot 17 and 35 from three. That's basically 50%. And towards the end of that game, Creighton was just raining threes on them. And they just couldn't make a stop on defense to try to cut into that momentum. And that was the problem. Again, they talked about Mitch Ballack had 29 points. He hit the dagger, too, with like 40 seconds left. But there were just so many games down the stretch. And it started here where they just could not make a stop on defense. And teams 
like Creighton and other teams they'd play down the line, they would get their momentum going by hitting a bunch of threes and they just wouldn't be able to stop them. And obviously the Pirates offense wasn't the issue in some of these games. It was just the lack of being able to stop some of the other players stars and again, perimeter defense. But I really wanted to highlight that point because I remember watching that game and I just wanted to yell at my TV sometimes when I'd see how many threes they'd let up by the end of some of these games. Yeah. I mean, I think for me, you know, the, that three game stretch sort of epitomized what I took away from the season, which is that it was just, it was just frustrating. And it was just so close at certain points, you know, we saw, you know, the team, which we'll touch on in a second, you know, they were right there on the bubble for the tournament and then just barely slipped out. And, you know, in, in, in these games, you know, they were winning, they were up again, up by 16 against Creighton, like you said, and they just couldn't pull it out at the very end. And so, you know, that's almost a little bit more of a, of a frustrating and, you know, you, you hate, you'd almost rather, at least for me, you know, see the Pirates just get, I mean, almost blown out, I guess you could say, because then you, know, you could just chalk it up to, okay, yeah, Creighton was just a much better team, you know, a phenomenal team, you know, one of the best in the nation. But I mean, the Pirates were right there and they just, they just couldn't pull it out. You know, it was just a few couple of things, you know, Mamu, he had the game winner right there. And he just couldn't hit it. And, you know, and the, the, the team had the lead against Creighton and they just couldn't pull it out. And so, you know, it was just a little frustrating, you know, to see that this team was really so close and it was just a couple of things just needed to go their way and they just didn't get the luck of the draw. And kind of continuing on a bit of a pessimistic note, we're going to look now towards the, the, the tail end of the season where after that three-game stretch against, you know, Nova, Creighton, Nova, the Pirates did pick it up again. You know, they won on a four-game winning streak against Providence, UConn, Marquette, and DePaul. And after that, you know, it was kind of a make-or-break point in the season where, you know, the Pirates had a decent resume for the NCAA tournament. They were being billed as a bubble team, kind of in that first four in, sometimes first four out, you know. And it was just looking towards the last final home stretch of the season. Four games, they had Georgetown, Butler, UConn, St. John's. And the Pirates really just kind of needed two, maybe even just one more win against the Big East opponent to really sort of solidify the resume, should keep them on the bubble, and they would hopefully get into the tournament. And things just didn't go the way that the Pirates wanted. They wound up dropping all four games down the end of the regular season stretch. And it was, again, kind of just a frustrating point in the season. So... With that being said, you know, you guys kind of touched on a little bit of, you know, the issues that the, the Pirates team had, but specifically focusing on that last four-game stretch, what do you think kind of went wrong that, you know, the Pirates just couldn't even eke out one win to, you know, really put that final capstone on their resume? That's a great question, Joe. So keeping what I said in mind about what just happened, we talked about with the Creighton and Villanova losses, with these, these last four games, obviously – it was inexcusable by the end that they couldn't pick up one, just one win to be able to solidify an NCAA tournament spot. But I'll start, I'll just go in order with the, the Georgetown game. Again, like I talked about the game of runs and it just seemed like by the end of the season, there would be times where the Pirates would have some massive runs in games, but then the opposing teams would just honestly just have bigger and better ones. And that's what ended up happening. I know in the, the Georgetown game, they overcame a 12 point first half lead, but by the end, I think the Hoyas went like a 10 to run to end the game. So that was it. But again, my other flaw that I was talking about before, again, bit them again when Georgetown went 63% from behind the three-point line, which 
when you, if a team is shooting, I think more than 15% from three in a game, it's very hard to beat them unless you can really match that offensively, which the, the Pirates offense was there. But again, the Hoyas offense was just even a little bit better in that one. So that game, all right, it was similar to Creighton again, where they just couldn't stop him from behind three. Fast forward to Butler, where out of, I guess out of the four, it was their worst offensive game, I'd say, um, especially just because it was the lowest points amount scored. And again, Amamu only had 11 points. Jared Rodney led with 14. But this was a game where they were just ice cold on offense. And there, I know teams have that every once in a while. And this happened to be the game where the offense just really couldn't get going. They went like three-minute scoring droughts here and there. I remember towards the latter part of that game. So you could just chalk up that game to just, you know, poor offensive execution. Um, the Butler stingy defense after playing them earlier in the year, they wanted some revenge. Okay, so you're down two, right, so you're down two games now with two games left that, Again, if you win one of them, you can make the tournament potentially. You go to UConn, which again, it's senior night. It's the first time there's fans at Prudential Center for the first time in like a year and a half. I think it was 1,756. And this was a game where the Pirates were super red hot to start out. They went on a 10-2 run. But again, like it's happened the last three games before it, UConn had like an 18-2 run in the middle of the game. And they just kind of ran away with it towards the end. Um, Mamu had like a double-double, a 20-point double-double, and he did all he could. So that was another game where, again, I'm not going to say, because this is unfair to say, that towards the latter halves of some of these remaining games that they had, that they necessarily gave up. But there were times where they would just let these teams go on these insane runs, like offensively, where they have like 10-2, 18-2 runs, where, again, you just maybe cut into half of that, and that could be a whole different ballgame and a different outcome by the end of the game. And it just was just frustrating to see, to watch these teams almost explode on the Pirates sometimes by the, by game's end. So that game, you could also chalk it up to that. Now go to St. John's, which thankfully they ended up getting the revenge in the Big East tournament. But this was a game they started out in an 18 and nothing lead, the Pirates. I remember that. There was eight different Pirates scored in the first half. Six different players had an assist. But then St. John's goes on a 28 to eight run and score 53 second half points. So again, I remember watching that game and it just felt like after a while, like the offense, they almost, I'm not going to say the word, I'm not going to use the phrase given up anymore, but like they just couldn't get anything going. St. John just, again, shot the cover off the ball. I'll go back to my other point about the three point, you know, defense being abysmal. They were 45% from three, which is basically 50%. You know, you're not going to win games when the other team is going to be sh shooting the cover off the ball. And obviously the offense can't be there every, every game, but just making sure the other team really can't go on these huge runs where 28 to eight run, that's just insane of how much that is. So that's, that was those four games. And again, there's reasons for why they won. No, excuse me, the reasons for why they lost each of those four games, but some of the common trends like I've been mentioning were, were the same and it ended up leading into eventually the Georgetown game, which would be, you know, just a couple of weeks later. Yeah. That, that road game against Georgetown, the Pirates were on a four game win streak and, and it was like, you know, they had finally seemed like they were building that momentum. Like, I was like, okay, you know, you made it out of that gauntlet. You know, those three games of, of ranked losses, <clears throat> extremely tough. You know, you could have won two of those, whatever. Wiped the slate clean. They're undefeated in February, heading up to that road Georgetown game. And then, obviously, that one ended in a loss. Okay. On the road again at Butler. The Pirates had previously beat Butler earlier in the year, like Jonathan mentioned. And I think in that game, it was just like, like I, I can't, I can't put into words how how frustrating it was to watch this team at, at certain points. Like they were up seven early, and they went 
into it. But it was just like an ugly game. Like halftime score of 26 to 24. That's that's pretty egregious, you know, with how skilled some of these guys are offensively. You know, it, it was just frustrating. Like, yes, Butler, you know, obviously not as talented as the Pirates from a, a roster construction point of view. But in knowing that, knowing that they, they have a pretty young team, they're going to try and muck up the offense. They're going to try and slow it down. They're going to try and limit possessions. And they did that to a T. And then they come out second half, start with a 10-1 run. And then they stretch that to a 20-6 run. So at that point, you know, the Pirates were playing from behind pretty much the entire second half. And credit to Butler, they just locked in. I mean, the Pirates couldn't even hit free throws. Butler was just getting in their head defensively. I don't know how. But, yeah, that game was just super questionable. The Connecticut loss, again, credit to the, the credit to the Huskies. They're super talented, really spoiled senior night for the Pirates. It's now back-to-back senior nights being pretty much ruined by the opposition. But, man, that one was just really unfortunate. And, and UConn, you know, they they were a tournament team for a reason. You know, really strong squad managing to, to – pull out victories even without book night and obviously with book night on the court they, they were just a completely different team and then that St. John's game March 6th it was just like man being at the station for that it was pretty rough I, I want to say I was I was in studio for both the the at St. John's men's game and later in the night the women's team had that game against Creighton the East championship which we'll be discussing later but Again, morale was very low. Uh, Jonathan mentioned it, but the Pirates went up 18-0, right? And it's like, okay, you know, 20-point lead in, in this day and age is really much nothing which how, with how well these teams shoot the three. But starting out that well was encouraging, you know, especially coming off of a three-game losing streak. And I think the funny part is I don't think anyone watched any of that 18-point lead because I think – the first like five minutes of the game or so, Fox was still showing NASCAR. Um, so I think it was me and Jory in studio and, and I turned to Fox and I'm seeing these cars just zoom lap after lap. I'm like, man, where's the game? So I think the majority of the fan base missed, missed much of that game. But as soon as they come back, I mean, Jonathan, like you mentioned, St. John's, they, they just started raining threes, man. They, it was like, they were just throwing it up. It, it, like they all had game breakers and it was just really dejecting. And, and again, credits to St. John's Red Storm came out second half, 28 to eight run. Like they were just like the, the shooting display in that game. I think I, there were a couple of bank threes at one point, like, man, at that point, there's just not much you can do, but make no mistake. It was just tough to end the season. You know, you never want to do that. You never want to back into the postseason. You know, nobody wants to go into the postseason with a four-game losing streak. You know, a four-game win streak would be much better or even split those games. You know, you control your own destiny. But in that loss, they fell out of the top four. St. John's was able to leapfrog them off of off of tiebreakers or whatever it was, which was, I think, Seton Hall's first, like, time not finishing in the top four of the Big East since like 2016 or whatever it was. But make no mistake, it was just really unfortunate. You know, again, morale was really low and it was frustrating 
to me because like we knew just how good this team was like we knew they had all the pieces to be special but time and time again you know somebody wouldn't show up or the defense wouldn't be as crisp as it should be or you know shots weren't falling so you know is that a coaching issue is that a personnel issue is it that the opposition was just simply better than them I don't know but for a lot of these games it felt like Seattle had the best player on the floor, potentially the second best player on the floor and Jared Roden, or, you know, he was just at least on par with the opposition's best player. And, you know, Willard is one of the better coaches in the Big East. So it's like a lot of these losses were unexplainable, you know, for to me at least. And, I mean, we're, we're just watching this team go through these droughts offensively and then they couldn't stop a nosebleed defensively for a lot of it. It was just, man, like I'm, I'm getting a little worked up thinking about it now because it's like, you know, in hindsight, you know, yeah, things things sucked then. And hopefully, you know, obviously things will be much different this season, you know, with uh, a pretty new roster, the parts will be rolling out. But just thinking back on it, like some of those losing streaks last season, pretty much unexplainable to say the least. Yeah, I think it was just kind of really crushing last four game stretch, you know, and I mean, I think you you sort of said it, Hev, where for me at least, the most frustrating thing was that, like, I, you kind of knew that this really wasn't who Seton Hall was as a team, you know, like, looking at that game against Butler, the Pirates only put up 52 points, the leading scorer was Roden with 14, Mom only had 11, and like, that's not an accurate reflection of what this team really was and how these guys really played, and it was sort of just like, they just got cold and, you know, just went had their bad stretches just the worst kind of possible time. And I mean, the Butler game for me was probably the worst loss in my opinion, because the other three losses, you know, St. John's again, a pretty fantastic team, you know, and they didn't make the tournament, but again, you know, kind of a, there was an acceptable loss in my opinion, you know, they lost to UConn, like you said, has tournament team. I mean, they were great. You know, Blue Knight is just phenomenal. And so, Understandable that they dropped it to them. Georgetown, a little bit more frustrating, but again, they got on fire to end the season, which we'll talk about in a tiny little bit. So, you know, it was, again, kind of understandable they lost to that red-hot Georgetown team, but Butler was not really a great team this year. And, you know, and especially looking at some of the stats from the game, you said, Jonathan, that, you know, one of the big things that Hall struggled with was opponents shooting and, you know, that perimeter defense. And Butler actually didn't even do that great from behind the arc. They they shot 25%, 4 of 16 from three. So, I mean, in that game, you know, the Pirates were actually doing a good job of locking up the, locking up the perimeter D. They were fixing some of the issues that, you know, we had seen them struggle with earlier in the year. But then the things that went wrong for them in that game were, you know, the scoring and the offense wasn't there, which was something that we really hadn't seen all year. So, that was the most frustrating thing is that things just kind of got turned on their head and, you know, one topsy-turvy and just at the worst possible time. And it was really frustrating, but things were not all doom and gloom to end the year because we still got one more pretty great moment in the season, which was in the Big East tournament. And seeing all they actually got one more win. They got the revenge against St. John's who they lost to in that final game of the regular season campaign. They beat them 77 to 69 in the first round of the Big East tournament, Seen Hall would go on and 
lose to the eventual Big East tournament champion, Georgetown, who stormed into the NCAA tournament. See how lost them 66 to 58. So looking at those games in the Big East tournament, what were your impressions from the Pirates play? You know, how were they able to turn around and get that win against St. John's? And I mean, for me, at least against that Georgetown team, I didn't even really feel like Seton Hall played that terribly. It was just a factor of Georgetown was just the team of destiny last year, and there was really no one who could stop them. So what were your impressions from that win against St. John's and that loss against Georgetown? Man, it was it was exciting. Like, being on those games with Michael Daly, I'll, I've said it once, I'll say it again. Michael's got one of the best radio voices I've ever heard. So it was just super fun being able to to, to call those with him and sort of bounce off of his calls. It was just, man, like, it was a quick turnaround. You know, the, the Pirates had played St. John's March 6th, and then I think the rematch was March 11th. So, like... I think the March 6th game was at Carnesecca Arena. And then, yeah, and then the March 11th game was at MSG. So it was just like, it had that it had that big fight feel. Like, you could just feel it. It was like, um, I'm looking now, this article describes it as a classic Big East rock fight. And it was like, there's no other way you could describe it. Like, it was just, I'm getting goosebumps now. Like, no, no funny. It was just, man, like, like, Games like that is, is what makes it fun being a college basketball fan. Like both the teams laying it all on the line, that, that postseason action, that postseason energy, both teams don't want to lose. And because it's the Big East, you want those bragging rights. You know, you want to say, I was able to knock you out of the postseason. I was able to dash your championship hopes. And man, it was just so crazy. I'm looking at the stats now. Sandro had 20 and 11. Roden had 19 and 16. Kale has 16 and 8. Like the three of them scoring 15 plus in a game. I wish I had a stat for how many times that happened, you know, over the course of, of their careers. But man, all of them coming together to hoop like this at the same time. Games like this, you just throw shooting splits out of the window. I don't care that Sandro shot seven for 20. I don't care that Roden shot five for 13. I don't care. It's all about putting the ball in the rim when it's all said and done. Ike had seven points, five rebounds, and seven blocks before fouling out. I know you mentioned the, the Wagner game earlier on, Joe, but that St. John's game was quite possibly the best I've ever seen from Ike Obiago, just what he was able to do, you know, in, in, in every facet of the game. He was just downright phenomenal. The Pirates, they just made so many plays, man. I was so proud of them that day. And credit to St. John's, man. Like, the Red Storm, Next season out, they've got Champagne back. It's it's him and Posh. They're they're gonna be pretty rough to beat. But man, you know him, Rasheem Dunn was making some crazy plays. Greg Williams Jr., Marcellus Erlington. You know, Posh didn't have the the best game, but he had three steals. You know he's always gonna be a pickpocket. It was just man, and again, you know with just how hotly contested every game was last season between those two teams. It, it, it needed an extra five minutes to decide the, the victor. You know, the Pirates, they beat St. John's at home to open conference play. You know, St. John's won the regular season finale. At that point, you know, it, it was only right that it had to take overtime, you know, for the, the, the true victor to be decided. And the Pirates came out in OT, and they put a lid on the rim. They put a lid on the rim, and they locked up, you know, just – 
the entire like second half and overtime. It was just so fun to watch. The Pirates had 10 turnovers in the first half. They didn't turn the ball over the final 12 minutes of the game, including overtime. Like they were just, everything was flowing. Everyone was firing on all cylinders. The Pirates got stops, you know, possession after possession after possession in overtime. It was just, man, man, what a play. What a game. I'm, I'm thinking about watching the highlights after this, but, but that one, it was, it was definitely fun to, to restore the feeling. Uh, yeah, that game was just absolutely incredible. And um, for me, I had the chance to be report that game. And I remember that was my favorite game, obviously, to be report of the entire season besides the, the, the men's soccer uh, championship runs. But I just remember from that game and the game before it, like you put it best before heaven, I'll kind of make an analogy. It was almost like an Ollie Frazier type of rivalry by the end of the season where, okay, like obviously these were two biggest rivals and they've had a story past, but you know, the pirates were in a very desperate stage after those four straight losses to end the season and to be able to really, all right, face St. John's in round one of the biggest tournament where if they do not go on a huge run and win the tournament, or at least go a couple of rounds to have a shot of making March madness, that it would be all said and done. And they, like you said, they came out firing. That was their best and most complete game of the season. I like how you talked about some of the offensive numbers. Um, one thing that I always noticed from that game is I was thinking in my head when I was watching that, seeing Jared Roden, all right, he was second on the team in scoring. Mamo had one more point. But Roden with a career high, like 16 rebounds, all I was thinking about was how next season, or the way which is now this upcoming season, when Mamu's not going to be here anymore, and he's going to have to take that, the Batman role, that this was a game that showed that he could potentially do that and that he could step up to the occasion because he was matching Mamu basically on the stat sheet and just from the eye test alone, seeing how dominant he was driving to the rack, being able to pull up for, for mid-range and three-point jumpers, just being that offensive you know, dynamo that he's going to have to be this season if the Pirates want to contend in the Big East. So that was just so encouraging. And like you said, even the defense, which I was just complaining about for about 20 minutes before, this game, I mean – once it was in overtime, I think they stopped Georgetown. I believe it was three out of the first four possessions, and they got, like, one free throw out of it on that last one. So their defense, again, stepped up. They proved all the critics wrong, and it was great to watch. It made for great basketball. It was exciting. I wish and pray that um, there were fans at this. It was at MSG. You can only imagine how what the atmosphere would be like if there was it was full capacity, like it was for, like, the New York Knicks playoff runs. If the Big East tournament had fans this year, what some of these games would it be like? But especially that one, you know, St. John's, you know, they play at MSG and the Pirates are, have had such a, you know, great, te- I'm going to say tenure over the last couple of years, you know, with some great memories there and winning the Big East championship and making some runs in the tournament. So that game was just phenomenal across the board. And I know we're going to talk about the Georgetown game as well, but I'll just say one thing before Joe asked that question was that there's some teams and especially in the Big East conference and college basketball as a whole, if they're on that kind of dream run, no one can stop them. And watching that Georgetown game, it just felt like that for a lot of it. And it was obviously just very discouraging. But again, the one takeaway from that game I got is again, Jared Roden had 22 points. And obviously Mamu should have been the leading scorer because he was Batman last year, but seeing Roden step up like that was just incredible. And it, it gave me a lot more confidence as a fan and as a, as a broadcast media member for WSU to see that next season, we can really b- rely on him to be sort of fill that Batman role for the pirates that he's going to have to be that offensive dynamo, like mom has been and miles Powell was two years ago that he's going to have to step up. But 
Georgetown was the team of destiny. And as we saw, they ended up winning the whole thing. So if they were going to have to lose, I think we'd rather have it to a team that ended up winning the whole thing. And that's what ended up happening. Yeah, I think you hit the nail right on the head there, Jonathan, with regards to the Georgetown game. And, I mean, that St. John's game, for me at least, was my favorite game from the entirety of, of this past Pirate season. Because, you know, it was, like you said, have it felt like a classic, just Big East. That's what Big East basketball is. It's these two heavyweight teams going up against each other, big-time rivalry in a big game. Seton Hall came out on top. Roden played phenomenal. Mamu played phenomenal. Obiagu, like you said, heaven. I said that the Wagner game was his best game of the year, and I, I'm, I'm gonna go back on my own, my own take and say that actually, looking further into the stats for this, for the St. John's game, I think this was his, his, this was his best game. I mean, he tied Samuel Dallenberg's record for Seton Hall in terms of most blocks in a game in a Big East tournament game with seven. I mean, he was just a monster. The, the Pirates were clicking on all cylinders in that St. John's game, and you know. For me, at least, it felt like, you know, it was start of this was going to kick up a little Cinderella run in the tournament, and they just wound up running into the, the real Cinderella team out of the Big East in Georgetown, who there was no stopping them. But that, that St. John's team, that St. John's game was just so much fun. And actually, fun story, Jonathan, you said you, you were the beat writer for that game. I was actually, Will had reached out to me to potentially beat right for that, and I, I didn't, I couldn't actually because I had class during that game because they, they scheduled that game from one of the early games. So I, I missed the whole first half because I was in stats class. So I was like sitting on the edge of my seat, you know, through class. And it was just, it was real, real exciting. And I, I hadn't felt that sort of excitement in really any other game this season. So really, really awesome end to the season, at least, you know, in, in the St. John's game, Georgetown game, didn't go how Pirates fans wanted. But you touched on it, Jonathan, is that now with Rodin going to be a senior next year, there's a lot of bright things for the, for the future in terms of the Pirates. And there's going to be some change heading into next season. We've got some players leaving. Shafar Reynolds will be transferring to Monmouth. Sandro Mamukalashvili Mama, Sandro, will be leaving Seton Hall, entering the NBA draft. And I want to talk about Mama real quick. He, last year... Had an absolutely monster season. 17.5 points per game, 7.6 rebounds per game, shot 43% from the field. And he took home Kobe Player of the East Honors, along with Colin Gillespie and Jeremiah Robinson Earl out of Villanova. And now Mamu's going to be going into the NBA draft. He started to get a little buzz around him as a prospect. So I guess now is sort of our chance, as you know, guys who we've seen Sandro, Sandro play pretty much his whole career here at Seton Hall. We know what he's like. We know what an NBA team is going to be getting in him. So now is, I'll leave it up to you, Jonathan, have to sort of talk up Mamu and, you know, give him all that praise and, you know, preview why, if, you, if you're an NBA fan, why your team should be looking for him in this draft and what he's going to be able to bring to the table for an NBA team. Yeah, Joe, I love we have the opportunity to almost be like his reporters and just if there were any professional NBA teams listening to this to be able to hear our scouting reports on him. Because obviously, as seen all fans, we always want any of the players that are going to go to the NBA to get drafted. And with Miles Powell, obviously, with everything that's been going on the last couple of days, that would, that's been up in the year. And now we kind of know there were maybe some other reasons behind that. But there were obviously some questions about his size and what the scoring was there, and he was just a complete player. But with Sandra Mamakilishvili, for an NBA team to pass on a, now a prototypical NBA big man who can, again, drive to the rim, at, excuse me, drive to the rack 
at will and also be a facilitator and be able to shoot. I just think it's a no brainer for many NBA teams. And I know a lot of NBA teams have questions about defense for some of these players, but I would just find it so surprising if he is not drafted either somewhere in the second round, late second round, just drafted period, just because of, especially this past season, what he's shown. And one game that I'll highlight for one that I think showcased his best, I guess, highlight package and just best, you know, what he brings to the table for an NBA team was that December 11th, when they beat St. John's for the first time um, at home. Okay, he had a career high in, in points with 32 points. Um, he had nine rebounds, three assists. But that game showed a little bit of everything of what he can bring for your team. All right, he can spot up from three when necessary as a stretch big. He can spin in and out of defenders and drive and, and throw down a jam. He can run out and transition and make a sharp outlet pass or a nice pass. There was a couple of passes he made to Ike Obiagu for dunks. He has the vision. He has, you know, just the offensive tools that an NBA big man needs. I just, again, would find it just so shocking if he's not drafted. And I know there's obviously questions, like I said, about defense. And there's been some prospects in the past that have not gotten the same recognition just because of their defensive, you know, capabilities. But in the NBA, I feel like it's much harder to teach offensive talent than defensive talent. And Mamu has shown this season, like you said, Joe, from his stats alone, that he has the offensive talent. And I've seen some articles where they've talked about like where he maybe he obviously would want to play for the Knicks or Nets to stay back home. And obviously the Knicks and Nets picks could fluctuate, but the Knicks, you know, have 32nd and, and number 58 in the second round. The Nets have number 44 and 49. Those are very possible. You never know. And I think for, for him personally, I know he's going to probably want to stay home, but just, he just wants to get drafted and he's studied former NBA players with European descent. Obviously mom was from Georgia and becoming one of the uh, only Georgia players to ever get drafted besides Zaza Pachulia. But he studied players like Tony Kukoc, DeMontis Sabonis, Nikola Jokic, Tim Duncan, which are obviously, I'm not comparing him to them. I'm just saying players that he's tried to model his game after. But he is such a unique player that for his 6'11 size and to be able to shoot like he does to create on offense and to really push the ball in the open floor, I think is one of a kind. And if his tape from this season doesn't show it, I don't know what does. Even in the combine where he had that one game where he was, you know, leading the ball in, uh, in transition and pulling spin moves on defenders and just out of nowhere. If that doesn't say it for an NBA big man to get drafted, I don't know what does. Yeah, I mean, Jonathan, you pretty much hit it on the head. Like, uh, I was going to mention the St. John's game, but to change my answer now, I'm going to go with the game he had two games before that, the Penn State coming back. He had 30 points, five rebounds, and four assists in that one as well. And, uh, I mean, he, he showcased pretty much the, the same thing. And it's like, like, Sandro just has, like, a, a very clear, like, projected role at the next level. Like, when you're that tall, when, when you're that big, and you can move that well, and you can handle the ball, and you can shoot. I mean, we've seen the range that he has when you could shoot from darn near 30 feet at any size, like an NBA team is going to look at that and consider you, you know, eligible, you know, for at least a two-way contract, you know, now obviously he's a four-year prospect. So, you know, teams might value other players over him just because of, of potential. But if you're a team looking to win now, if you want someone who can be a facilitator at the five, who can also space the floor, I don't know why you wouldn't pick Sandra. I mean, we saw that 
a little bit with Mason Plumley in Detroit last year. He He's not as prolific uh, of a three-point shooter as, as Mamu, but in terms of, of handling the ball and running those those dribble handoffs and, and you know, being able to show a little bit on the perimeter, I feel like Mamu has that in, in spades. And you, know, you, you add that he can spot up as well. Like, he's really phenomenal offensively. You know, just everything he can do. And, I mean, you mentioned it, that, that combine game he had where he was just going coast to coast and threading needles, like, He's showcased that, you know, for the last two years that he can be that guy. So I'd love to see Mamu get drafted. You know, I feel like, you know, uh, even when Miles Powell was on the team, I, I only saw Mamu and, and Roden as like the only really NBA caliber players, you know, and, and no disrespect to Miles Powell, but uh, I just it seemed like a long shot, you know, knowing his obviously him being a four-year prospect and, and not being too strong defensively and, and being a little bit on the, the smaller side, uh, just like as a player. So Mamu making it to the league wouldn't surprise me. And I think a team should definitely take a gamble on him, at least in like the, the 50s or 40s, uh, you know, in the draft a couple weeks from now. Yeah, I mean, you know, we said that we, we ha we've had the privilege to cover Mamu and see all of his games over the past couple of years. And, you know, so we sort of get that extra special insight that other people don't. And if you're listening and, you know, you don't know really who Mamu is, if you haven't watched a lot of his games, I mean, you've really got to look into this guy more because, sure, maybe at surface level, it just seems like, okay, he's just like a standard, you know, power forward type who can score the ball, grab some boards. But he has got one of the most versatile offensive games I mean, just period in this entire draft class. The man is an elite shooter. He can facilitate. He has post moves. And the fact that that all comes in a 6-11 frame, that's, I mean, you said it, Jonathan, where, you know, you can sort of sometimes teach defensive, you know, abilities and stuff like that at the NBA level. You cannot teach what Mangu can do on the offensive end. I mean, he's got an absolutely special skill set. And it, it's just, you know, even if teams aren't aren't going to take him, you know, at the top of the draft, you know, you might want to take a guy who maybe has a little bit of higher ceiling or something like that. I mean, there's absolutely going to be a place for Mamu in the NBA. You know, even if you know he his defense struggles a little bit and he's a little lackluster there, and you know maybe he doesn't do as well down in the post. I mean, still having a guy who's six eleven who can consistently knock down a three, just that alone, there's going to be a spot for him in the league a guy who can very conceivably run the point and facilitate an offense in basically a center's body, there's going to be a spot for him in the league in the NBA. So absolutely 100%, I mean, Mamu should get drafted. I honestly, I'm a Mets fan, and very legitimately, this is not seen home bias. I honestly want us to take him in the first round at number 27 because I think he fits in on that Nets roster absolutely beautifully. But I mean – just in general, I mean, if, if you don't know about Mamu, absolutely go watch his tape. Go go look at him because this dude is an absolutely phenomenal prospect. And he really, I think, is going to be in the NBA for years and years and years to come. And he just had an absolutely phenomenal season. And we've been we've had such an awesome privilege to be able to see Mamu's Seton Hall career. So absolutely props to Mamu on a fantastic, fantastic collegiate career. Biggest player of the year one of the best players we've ever had the, the privilege to cover here at Seton Hall. But now as we start to sort of wrap up for the men's basketball season, we sort of recapped how things have gone. 
I want to look ahead to next year. And the Pirates, they're, they're, this year was a little bit disappointing, and they're certainly going to be looking to sort of have a big bounce back year next year. Kevin Willard in this past offseason, I mean, the man went absolutely nuts and, you know, reloaded this roster. There's a phenomenal incoming class uh, combined of, you know, incoming freshmen and transfers. There's going to be an absolutely phenomenal out-of-conference schedule for this Pirates team next year. But above all of that, I think the biggest thing that is going to be, you know, sort of a big hope for the Seton Hall Pirates team next year is to get back to the NCAA tournament. This past year, they didn't make it, obviously, as we said, and that's the first time they haven't made the big dance since 2015. You know, they had a four-year stretch of making the tournament in the 2020 season, which was shortened and canceled due to the pandemic. They absolutely would have made the tournament, and I'm still incredibly upset about that because they were a Final Four team. I'm going to die on that bill, that 2020 team with Miles Powell. But looking ahead to next year, what is, if you had a pin your hopes on, you know, one key thing in regards to this team, what do the Pirates need to do to make sure they return to form and get back to being a consistent NCAA tournament team at the top of the East? You know, I think it's important that they they find their sense of identity. You know, you mentioned uh, Coach Willard pretty much retooling the, the roster. We're getting six newcomers next year, you know, a, a bunch of freshmen, you know, from you know, one of Seton Hall's best recruiting classes in, in a while. Not only that, but you're getting transfers like Jameer Harris and Kadari Richmond and Alexis Yetna. Like, there's a lot of, of new blood being injected into this squad. So now, you know, you, you have to really use those first couple of games to, to figure out, you know, the, the hierarchy of some sort. Like, yes, you know Jared Roden's going to be that guy. Now, without... Shavar Reynolds on the squad, you know, does Bryce Aiken slide into that starting point guard role? Do they give that to Jahari Long? Do they play Kadari Richmond there? Who I feel like should be the, the starting point guard, or at least at the two. Does Jameer Harris get that spot? You know, does Ryan Conway get that spot? So there's just, there's just so many options on the roster. You know, do you slide someone like Brandon Weston into the starting lineup, you know, as a highly uh, recruited and highly ranked freshman, you know, does he get that that prime spot off jump? You know, what's Miles Kale going to do in his graduate season after putting up his his best season in quite some time and, and really rebounding from a, a rough junior year? You know, Ike Obiagu, what is he going to do in his graduate student season? So, you know, it's it's going to be exciting. It's going to be really interesting to see how the hierarchy of this squad develops. And they don't have that much time, you know, to figure that out. I don't know if the Michigan game is the first game of the season. I know the Pirates are probably going to have a, a tune-up of sorts against Wagner, possibly Iona, maybe St. Peter's, or, you know, however the rest of the non-conference schedule shakes out. But looking at some of those non-conference games, man, you got Michigan, you got Texas, you got Rutgers. Then the, the Fort Myers tip-off, you know, around Thanksgiving, You've got Florida, Ohio State, like these these teams are slouches. So it's it's man, I'm I'm excited to watch to say the least. And you know, those first couple of games before conference play, because we all know conference play is undoubtedly the most important stretch every year for this team. You're gonna have to figure out 
the hierarchy of the squad and, and who you can trust in, in certain situations, you know, who's going to be your lineup for shooting, who's going to be in your lineup for defense, you know, which freshmen are going to, you know, step up and separate themselves from the rest of the pack, like Jahari Long did last year for that squad. So I'm excited to see, you know, how this team figures this out and, you know, the rest of the offseason process for Coach Willard and the rest of the staff. Heaven, you couldn't have put it any better. Um, I obviously, like the identity thing, which I think for every CN Hall team, there's obviously been different time spans that it takes at the beginning of a season for them to figure out. I guess we could say this past season during that eight and four stretch, once they got that win streak going, that's when we knew where the roles were defined and that the team was rolling. But I feel like for this year, depending on where this schedule is going to like end up panning out as, and the fact that they're playing these really tough out-of-conference teams early on, it might have to be even sooner, but when it comes down to it, and a couple questions that I'm going to have and things that have to be answered is obviously, like you said, and I've said about five times so far that Jared Ronan is, is Batman now, who's going to be that number two? And obviously, Miles Kale coming back for his graduate year, he's, you know, he's been through the gauntlet now. He's been here for multiple seasons. He, he is the, the definition of a veteran now on this team, but there's so many uncertainties of which of these other players could maybe even steal a spot or contend with him to get starting minutes time, like you said. Um, some names that I've been seeing just based on their social media and just getting engaged of like what this team is going to be like next season, they seem like a very tight knit so far. And that's why I think the coaching staff tried to emphasize. I've been looking on social media. I saw they went to like a top golf outing, outing, excuse me, and doing a lot of team building, uh, things like that. And I think that's just great for the chemistry just because, even a lot of the freshmen, you have some, like some came from California, just people from all over. And just the way this team's going to be made up, it's all these different personalities. And I just have no idea how that's all going to work out when it comes down, when they're playing Michigan, probably within the first couple of games of the season. So it's going to be definitely a learning curve at first, just because of not having at least some of the, the roles more defined than previous years. Last year, we knew Mamu was going to be number one and we knew Rodham was going to be number two. That was defined. But this upcoming season, there's so much uncertainty, but the uncertainty just makes it even more exciting because there's so much talent on paper alone that this Seton Hall team can be dangerous next season if they can put it all together. And if head coach Kevin Willard can, you know, strategize, like you said, make the game plans, clean up perimeter defense, not letting teams go on insane runs like they did last season, because there's a different cast now. There's a different group of players. Some, some of these players could be even better defenders than they've had in previous years, like Kadari Richmond, like Zenia, Ike Obiagu. Again, he had a great bounce back season and he's looks like he's turning the corner in his career and hopefully having an even better season this year as one of the best, if not the best shot blocker in the Big East, hopefully. But regardless, this season's going to be so exciting. And But the one thing that just is going to be in my mind is if, how fast they're going to be able to do it just because of how strong the schedule is going to be. And I really hope that next, I really hope that next season that they can put it together as soon as possible. Yeah, I mean, this next season for, you know, the, the scene hall team is, in my mind, I'm incredibly excited for it because I think it can be one of the biggest we've seen in a really long time. I mean, we've got an incredible crop of talent coming in. You know, you brought up some of the names that, you know, guys like Yetna, guys like Gary Richmond, you know, Jameer Harris, transfers coming in. You've got an incredibly exciting freshman class, Tyler Powell, Ryan Conway, Brandon Weston, who, who you brought him up. I mean, Brandon Weston is one of the best recruits Seton Hall has had, period, in, in the history of the program. So he's going to be incredibly exciting to watch and see how his uh, Seton Hall career kicks off. 
I think there's, you know, a really perfect combination of a lot of young and new talent coming in, but you still got Jared Rowan, who's going to still be here, Obiagu, Miles Kale's going to be coming back. A real nice blend of, you know, veterans and guys who have been here for a while and the new guys. And that out-of-conference schedule, I mean, it's going to be ridiculous. They've got Texas. They've got Michigan, which is slated to be a huge revenge game for the 1989 National Championship. They're going to be in that Fort Myers tip-off, who, you know, that's stacked with a lot of really great talent. I mean, I've just pointed out off-screen, you know, Milwaukee's going to be in it, and they've got Patrick Baldwin Jr., who's fifth in the whole nation. They've got Vin Baker Jr., I mean, they're playing a lot, a lot of talented teams, this Seton Hall Pirates team. And this, it, it really has everything in the cards, I think, to be one of the most memorable, one of the most fun, and one of the best Seton Hall seasons we've seen in a long time. The future is incredibly bright for this program. And even though this past season was a little bit of a down year for the men's team, it's sort of just a, you know, gone with the wind just forget about it. We re, re, retooled and next year is going to be great. So be sure to stay tuned, especially to WSU sports for all the coverage for that. And, you know, get ready to watch this men's team really go off next year. But now we're going to transition over to the women's side, the Seton Hall women's basketball team. They had a pretty phenomenal season last year. We're going to break down everything about them. Like we just do with the men's team, everything you need to know. And so, I mean, let's just get right into it out of gate. Uh, some you know numbers and stats about their season last year they finished 14 and 7 overall 12 and 5 in the big east conference they had a pretty phenomenal year i mean all things considered they lost a couple of games you know to yukon who yukon is just an absolute behemoth in women's basketball and you know had they managed to somehow beat yukon that would have been a national storyline but other than that you know they lost to 19th ranked DePaul. They lost to Creighton in the Big East. They lost to Villanova in the Big East. But that was all of their losses on the season. You know, just UConn twice, DePaul dropped a game against Creighton, dropped a game against Nova. Other than that, they won all their other 14 games. So I want to ask you guys, just from a whole season standpoint, what impressed you about the Pirates' play last season? And, you know, what led them to have such a great year? Yeah, Joe, and I'm going to bring up a point just first and foremost, just because obviously so far WSU sports, I'm mean, so glad Heaven's been trying to bridge the gap between men's and women's basketball coverage because this team last season was so exciting to watch. And if they can replicate what they did last season to this season, now with the coverage expanding even more and really on the rise, it's just so exciting to think about what it's going to be like this season. But let's just focus on last season alone. Again, 14 and seven. If I had a put a phrase to it to what they were like last season they took care of business when it mattered obviously like you said they couldn't defeat Paige Beckers in UConn they couldn't beat nationally ranked DePaul which they could have won one or two of those games but again Biggie's teams that were thrown at them with the exception of Creighton who was again that was the one team they couldn't beat and heaven remembers my first time ever in studio was the game that they lost to them in the regular season and they ended up losing to them again in the Big East tournament but they just took care of business. And again, when you talk about team's identity, this identity was figured out the second Andre Espinosa Hunter was finally on this team. And they developed the big three of her with Lauren Park Lane and Desiree Elmore and having the big three. And even there were some games, and I brought this up on air multiple times, that there was a big four where Maya Jackson was stepping up and having big time scoring numbers. And they could easily have like a four-headed monster if it wasn't for three. 
But for the majority of, of the second half of the season, for most of the season, it was the big three. And it was just so exciting just watching them mesh together. You could see the chemistry was there. Um, I, we've obviously learned in the past that Espinosa Hunter and, and, and Desiree Elmore have played together in the past. They played AAU ball together. And you could just see the chemistry of the team on the floor, just you know, offensively and defensively. They had players that stepped up on, on both sides. Espinosa Hunter turned into, I think, a top five player in the Big East. Des, again, Desiree Elmore was top five, top 10 in the Big East. Lauren Park Lincoln, arguably one of the best point guards in the Big East. And just saying the word Big East, Big East 100 times is just the truth, just of how well they played. And I just think that overall next season, it's obviously going to be a little bit tougher, like we'll talk about later, because one half of the big three is gone in Desiree Elmore. But this team had so many massive win streaks. I was looking through the schedule again. They won five straight early in the season and throw some two COVID postponements in there. Five straight to end the season, so the complete opposite of the men's team, where they, you know, they they barely beat Georgetown. I remember covering that game, be reporting that game was tough, but they won 67-55 against Providence. They win 108 to 65 to Xavier, where they set right the record for most threes. They had 17 threes and, and points ever, beating Villanova by 12 and then beating St. John's to end the season. This is one of the most impressive women's basketball teams we've seen in a long time. And it was just so exciting to watch the style of play they had. It was fast. They could, you know, knock down the three ball. They could really push the, the tempo and the momentum. And it just made for just great content and great just basketball all, all around. So last season was definitely a success just across the board, just from everything that happened. Yeah, man, Jonathan, again, you pretty much hit it on the head. Like it was, it was just so fun to watch this team, you know, just throughout the, the, the year. I mean, aside from that, that, Albany loss, like, and the Creighton loss, I guess, I guess, uh, this team, like, like you said, they took care of business, you know, it was just like nonstop, just so exciting. Like the offense, the, the firepower on this team, like you mentioned Lauren Park Lane, Andres Mosa Hunter and Desiree Elmore, but even past them, like Maya Jackson was great at se several points last year, Victoria Keenan, just a sharpshooter off the bench. And Maya Bembry, the, the transfer from Penn State, she it really separated herself and, and even started a, a few games, several games even. Alexia Alesh being able to, to space the floor somewhat from that center position. Amari Wright as a freshman, really, I think she played 20 games. I'm looking at she played 20 games. The rest of the freshmen, you know, they didn't really get that much burn. But Amari Wright, you know, got double-digit minutes per game. Like, she really separate herself so it was just it was just so much fun to watch this team and and Jonathan you mentioned it pretty much the season really flipped on its head you know once Andra joined the the lineup you know I think once she joined the squad the Pirates were two and two and they had just lost to, to Albany and UConn which I mean again UConn is, is whatever you know the Pirates are bound to lose to them albeit you know the final score doesn't show it all they were competitive, and, and Lauren Park Lane really stole the show on that one. Her duel with, with Paige Beckers in that game was just so exciting. And then, you know, the Providence game was Andra's first game, and that one came down to the wire. The Pirates were able to pull that one out with the victory. Villanova, it's always going to be tough to, to beat them. I mean, they're, they're super skilled. They're super talented. Maddie Segrist is, is one of the better players, if not the best player in the Big East. She had 23-9 that game, but she got a lot of help from Brandon Hurley in that one. And then from there, the Pirates just started just stringing wins together, man. Like, it was just so exciting. Like, Marquette, Butler, St. John, Xavier, like, Andra just 
became a flamethrower, just started knocking down shots. And Joe, you mentioned this in your, your prior player preview that dropped today. I mentioned this in my article that I released around the time of this stretch. You know, she had won back-to-back Big East Player of the Weeks. And, you know, throughout that, it was like, and the best part was it, it didn't feel like she was chugging. Like, it didn't feel like she was just jacking up shots. Everything she was doing was in the flow of the offense. You know, the Pirates, they played with, with a faster pace compared to the Bulldogs. And three-point shooting was was definitely much more of a, of a philosophy, of, of a philosophy, excuse me, in, you know, Walsh Gym as, you know, opposed to, you know, at Mississippi State where, where she transferred from. So she was just running to, to open spots. She was just getting to the left wing, getting to her spots. And Lauren Park Lane, Desiree Elmore, whoever was handling the ball at the time, they were finding her. She was knocking them down. Just that that scoring streak that she had, it was just downright insane. I think, I think in one of the games, I want to say it was the home game against Xavier. I think it was that one where she outscored the Musketeers in the first half. Like, that's just, just saying that doesn't make sense. Like, she had more points than Xavier did in the first half of play. It was just ridiculous. And then the, the St. John's game previous to that, she had 30 points through three quarters, which, like, women's basketball games are 10 minutes a quarter. You're putting up 30 points in, in 30 minutes. That's nobody – like, that's not easy. That doesn't happen every game. Like, that's just not common. She was just, just absolutely ridiculous on the road, at home. The Pirates were getting it done. You know, the win streak was bound to come to an end. But even that road game at Connecticut, the Pirates were leading at halftime, which I think only them and and Tennessee could say that the entire season against Connecticut. You know, to to say we had a lead over the Hoyas, or over the Hoyas, pardon me, over the Huskies at halftime. Like, that's just, that was just super special. Then, of course, you know, the Creighton loss and the DePaul loss. I was on that DePaul game. It's no comment on that one. I feel like the Blue Demons were just getting some, some home cooking there. And then, like Jonathan mentioned, to end the season on a five-game win streak and to have that momentum head into the playoffs and to break records, that Xavier game. Uh, that Xavier game, the the one, you know, the Pirates won 108-65, funnily enough. It was a men's game in that same night. I think it was the Butler game that the Pirates lost, and I was on hall line. And I didn't want to talk about that game. I wanted to talk about the Xavier game, but obviously I couldn't because, you know, the callers were there for the men's game. But make no mistake, this upcoming season, that will surely change. Um. The Nova game, the Pirates got revenge there, you know, picking up that victory and then winning on the road at Carnesec Arena. You know, the pre, the season before that, that that road game against St. John's, it'll probably be on a Pirate Rewind episode. Now I think about it, it'll probably be me and Will. Just because that game, that was just ridiculous. A kid fell on my neck. The Pirates got shafted down the stretch. They came out March 1st and said, none of that. I mean, put a lid on the rim, held the opposing team to 43 points. Like, that was just a phenomenal performance like this team man it was just so much fun like yeah yeah they lost to Creighton like yeah their season ended on a bit of a of a down note and yeah they did turn down that that NIT invite I was pretty salty about that because I wanted to go to San Antonio with Will <laughs> but even still I think it would have been Charlotte I don't know but make no mistake last season's team was definitely you know some of the the most fun basketball I've ever got the, the chance to witness just the, the energy, the morale of the team. It was just so high. You know, these these players really wanted to go out there and and, and win. 
And and they did that time and time again. And now next season, you know, sure, Desiree Elmore might be in Rhode Island now, but the Pirates return a lot of important contributors and they added uh, a few players I think could could definitely impact some some victories. So I just want to fast forward to November already. Yeah, I mean, that you guys both said it. I mean, it was just so, so much fun watching this Seahawks women's team this past year. You know, the big three, all three of them were having, I mean, just monster career games. It seemed like every game, you know, and one person would just take over. It, it was just phenomenal. And it, it did come to really kind of an abrupt and un, unwanted end for, for Seahawks Hall fans, especially with how fun this team was playing. And I do kind of want to touch on that a little bit. I mean, we went into a little bit of doom and gloom for the men's side. There's a little bit, there's a little tiny bit on the women's side here. You know, they lost to Creighton in the Big East quarterfinals, 83 to 76. Despite the loss, I mean, they still played pretty phenomenal basketball. I mean, the big three of, you know, Des, Andra, and Lauren Park Lane, they combined for 60 points. But I want to kind of break this game down a little bit, you know, get your guys' perspectives on, you know, how, how this sort of game went and, you know, what sort of went wrong and how, how they weren't able to really kind of go a little bit further in this Biggie's Thorny. That game, it was just like, man, like, uh, it's just, like, we just praised them, but it was just really dejecting. Like, it was just really sad. I think I was on with Jory in studio for that game. And it was the same day like I mentioned earlier, you know, the Pirates lost that regular season finale, the men's team, I should say, to St. John's. But that one, it was just, like, credit to Creighton. You know, Tammy Sarda, she's super tough. Like, she's just extremely tough. You know, she she went out. She balled out of control. Creighton, man, they're, they're man. Oh, looking at the box score now, Emma Ronciak and, and, man, Morgan Malley. She was just like, oh, it's just, it's just like, I'm getting annoyed now. Like I can laugh about it. Like it's whatever it's in the past. Teams lose all the time. A loss is a loss. But in the moment, some of the shots they were hitting, man, like it was just, I said it earlier. I used the word earlier, but debilitating. Debilitating is the only way I can explain it. Like I want to say Morgan Malley hit like a step back three at one point. Malley and Ronziak, they both hit four threes. So you're getting eight threes from, I think they're both, I think they were both freshmen at the time. So they're they're going to cause havoc in the Big East next year too. Temi Sarda doing what she did, 29 points, nine for 15 from the field. She had two threes, almost perfect at the line. I wrote in an article, you know, in a, in a Big East tournament recap for my internship a couple months ago, you know, that it was time to, to give her her flowers. She played every minute that game, you know, 40 minutes. She didn't step off the, the court. She drew 10 fouls, like – she did what needed to be done. She did what needed to be done. She she realized just how important it was. And she was a, a plus seven in a seven point victory. You know, like again, plus minus doesn't mean everything, but think if she came off the court for any second at all that game, you know, how the tide would have swung, you know? She she went out there, she was the facilitator. She was the scorer. She, she put her teammates in position to succeed and you know, credit to her, credit to, to Ron Siak and credit to Morgan Malley. And, you know, it's not like the Pirates went out sad. You know, Lauren, Andra, Dez, they all scored 19-plus. Like, it was close, man. It was it was a darn good game, to say the least. And, you know, that's basketball. You know, some teams are going to lose. Some teams are going to win. You know, so that that is unfortunate. And, you know, um, 
with how the rest of the bracket shook out, you know, with DePaul losing as well. I think if the Pirates had won, I think they would have played, who was it, Villanova in the second round? Or maybe it would have been Marquette. I don't know. But even then, the Pirates shown that they could beat Villanova. They showed, they showed that they could beat Marquette, you know, during the season. So I think if the Pirates make it to the, the, the championship against UConn, you know, I think at that point, they probably get one of the at-large bids for the tourney. Who knows? But, you know, dropping that quarterfinal game, you know, putting a damper on that that five-game win streak to, to close out the season, it was a little heartbreaking. But now we know what this team was capable of, and now they've got some postseason experience under their belt. I think they can they can replicate that and even go further next year. Oh, I remember – I was supposed to be report the game after if they would have won. And I'm pretty sure it was Marquette they would have played. And it was just so it was honestly just devastating because I actually had a, a lot of great opportunities this year to cover big games. But that game would have been if they could have obviously if they could have been Creighton and they would have beat a Marquette and they would have just obviously faced UConn, which with house money, it just would have been insane. I think especially for this team last year going into this year now they kind of maybe had to get knocked down a few pegs in order, like you said, to maybe have an even better season next year. Because obviously we talked about they took care of business, but they have the playoff experience now. They have that feeling, you know, of, of losing a game that they should have won, you know, based off the talent alone, if you're comparing the rosters. Obviously, having you remember from that Creighton overtime game they lost in, Temi Sarter was just playing out of this world. She is the 100%, you know, focal point of that offense, and the offense runs through her. And, you know, head coach Tony Bazella tried to make adjustments on defense, but there's just some players like, you know, in basketball that could just take over games. And that's what she did. And then add in Emma Rosniak and Morgan Malley just pouring in threes. You know, that's that's a winning formula. That's a winning Biggie's tournament winning for, formula. And that's exactly what Creighton did. And again, similar to the men's team, when you face a team of destiny, that's just what happens sometimes. And you can't really blame anyone offensively, you said, for the Pirates if the big three scoring 60 points combined, you know, the offense was there. They just, you know, down the stretch, you know, Creighton started tightening up on defense as well. And some of the shots they were hitting in that game. Oh my goodness. I, I remember that step back three. There were a couple of threes in the corner. Temi Sauter was like some pulling some impressive and ones out of thin air. It was just, it was frustrating, but at the same time, it was just exciting big East basketball. And it was, you know, great for the conference, but oh, it was so frustrating that they couldn't make it just one more round. But again, I think it's going to be used as a learning experience. And I think especially for the newcomers that come this year, you have, you know, Lauren Park Lane is now going to be a junior. Uh, Andres Mills, hunter is another year older. Having that veteran leadership now in the locker room and not only having not only the young players from last year who are going to be a year older, but again, like the transfers coming in, it's just going to make for an exciting team next year. And it's going to be a good mixture of just, you know, veterans and, and rookies and just having experience and being able to know like, okay, last season, this is what happened in the Big East tournament. You know, we lost, we got outplayed despite playing pretty well ourselves. And I think they're going to be able to take this with a grain of salt and be able to use it this season, hopefully for an even larger Big East tournament run. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, as, as I mean, like have said, debilitating as that loss was, it's still, you know, kind of, you, you have to try to not let it put a damper on the whole bigger picture for the season, because it really was a phenomenal, phenomenal season for this Pirates team. And just because it didn't end how, how fans and you know, the team wanted, it doesn't mean that anything that happened during the season was lesser. So with that being said, I know we, we, we talked them up a little bit. You know, we, we talked about them, the big three for this past scene hall team, Andre Espinosa-Hunter, Lauren Park Lane, Desiree Elmore. But 
at this point, you know, we've broken down how the season sort of went for the Pirates, you know, how it ended. I want to focus on those three players, that big three, and now is our chance to really talk them up. And so I figure, you know, we'll each, there's three of us right now doing this pod. There's three members of the big three. So we'll each take one and really sort of, you know, just talk them up and, you know, let the fans and the listeners know what made them so great, especially this past season. So, yeah, I, this is a great idea, Joe, just having us, you know, we're, we're a big three and now we can just talk about this, you know, seeing how women's basketball big three. So I'll take, um, Oh, the saddest part of it was Desiree Elmore leaving for Rhode Island. And I just remember when that all went down, that it was just so surprising. It just came out of nowhere. And obviously we found that after the reasoning where, you know, playing for one of, I think, her old coaches and just having a good fit in Rhode Island for her graduate, her, her graduate career. But uh, this past season, she played out of this world. And remember the game where she had became the 1,000-point scorer? She averaged 17 points per game. That was seventh best in the Big East. Nine rebounds a game, second best. 50% for the uh, 50% from the field led the team and seventh in the big East, you know, she could just did everything, even just like on defense, third in blocks in the big East, seventh in steals. And she just did everything. She affected every facet of the scene hole offense and defense. And it's going to be really hard to replicate that. And I guess if I could put her game into just a couple of sentences about just, if you could watch her do an eye test or an eye lens, I would say, again, she, she could stretch the floor. She was, she was a mid-range sniper. When she was camped around the free throw line and she put up shots from there, it was basically automatic. You know, she could extend to the three. She had impressive post moves, almost Mamu-esque post moves sometimes when she'd be, you know, in and around the rim. You know, she could facilitate. She could, you know, dish the ball. It was just, she was such a dominant player. And I just wish that she could play one more season with this team and just to see what they would have done next year now that they have one year under their belts of getting their hearts broken in the Big East tournament. But, yeah, she had the career high on March 1st, 30 points, nine rebounds, three blocks, two steals. These are monster numbers. She showed up in the Big East tournament game. They couldn't have asked for any more from her, honestly. And she affected, you know, the other teams, uh, excuse me, the other players on the team's play. You could just see it. Lauren Parkway and Espinosa Hunter were better because of her. You know, the three kind of almost pinballed off each other, like you guys will talk about in a second. But it's definitely a very, you know, devastating loss that they're not going to have her next season and a hole that hopefully some of these transfers can just hope to fill by at least the middle of the season. Yeah, to, to, to somewhat, you know, build the, the morale of the, of the chat. I mean, yeah, it sucks that Des is leaving, but – Focusing now on, on Lauren Park Lane, like the the season she had, man, walked away with Big East most improved player. Like it was just so exciting to watch. Like her freshman year, you know, starting at point guard, she was in that facilitator role. And like then it made sense because, you know, the Pirates had Shadeen Samuels and they had Alexis Lewis and they had Desiree Elmore as a scorer as well. So she didn't really have to, to do much from, from that perspective. You know, her, her job was to get assists and to, to limit turnovers, which she did. I believe her assist to turnover ratio was pretty darn solid that season. You know, one of the, the better uh, rankings in conference. Hold on, let me, let me find it now before I lose my train of thought. Um, yeah, so I'm looking now freshman year. She had 4.2 assists, 2.1 turnovers. Like, that was her role. She started every game. It was just take care of the ball. Don't make too many mistakes. As a freshman, we threw you into the fire. Now let's see how you can rebound from that. 
her role this season switched pretty much dramatically. You know, the Pirates had no idea Andres Finoza Hunter was going to get that that waiver. They should be able to join the team, you know, midway through the season or a couple of games in. So it was now, okay, no Shadeen, no Alexis. Who's going to step up and be a scorer for this team alongside uh, Desiree Elmore? I thought it was going to be Lauren and, and Maya Jackson, you know, but it was like, how much is she going to, you know, increase the scoring average by, you know, like really how much is she going to do? And man, Lauren blew all of my expectations out of the water. Like going from 6.7 points per game to 17.5 points per game, you know, increasing her efficiency at the free throw line from, from two point range overall from the field. She added more assists per game. She was, you know, even working even more uh, from a rebounding perspective, like she did everything so well. Like she took over that UConn game, you know, everybody was watching for, for Paige Beckers and, and Lauren stole the show. Like, it's just, it was just so fun to watch. And, and we could talk about her stature and, and how she's doing this at, at, you know, her height, whatever it is. Point of the matter is she's a hooper. She's a hooper. There's no other way to describe her. And she went into next year, or she's going to next year with, with huge expectations. But man, judging from what she did last year with, with that increased volume and her, her increased role, she was able to, to maintain her facilitating duties from the previous season, but she also tacked on almost 11 points per game, which is just unheard of. Don't, don't let her add a consistent three-point shot because we could see a dark horse for Big East Player of the Year. And Lauren Parkland, which is absolutely phenomenal, as was Desiree Elmore. But now I've got to talk about Andre Espinosa Hunter, who you said, Lauren Parkland, you know, we might see her be a dark horse for Biggie's player of the year. I think Andre Espinosa is not even a dark horse, an absolute legitimate contender for Biggie's player of the year this coming season. Last year, her first season in a Pirates uniform, she was absolutely, absolutely phenomenal. And I mean, have talked about it a little earlier. I, I, Ruined her pirate player preview for this upcoming season, which was just released today on the day we're recording it on Thursday. So be sure to check that out. But I mean, Andra Espinosa Hunter, just an absolute sniper, is is one thing that I could say to describe her. I mean, she is one of the best three point shooters in the entire Big East Conference. I, I was looking through her stats, and there was one thing that jumped out to me, and it was almost kind of mind boggling which was that she led the entire Big East with 2.9 three-pointers made per game. And she had almost as many three-pointers made per game as she did just regular two-pointers. 47% of her points come from the three-pointer. And like you said, Hev, earlier, it's not like she's, you know, just chucking up shots and just, you know, you know, throwing up a lot of shots from behind the arc. It's because that's what her game is centered around. And she's just an absolute machine when it comes to shooting and that's how she has just fit in wonderfully to this offense. I mean, she led the pirates in scoring with 18.6 points per game, you know, the shooting I already talked about, and, you know, like you said, have earlier too. I mean, back to that these player of the week awards, she had a stretch where she averaged 29 points per game from January 18th to January 23rd. Within there, she had that 30 point game against St. John's, which was a career high for her. She, along with the other two members of our big three, were all Big East first team members. I mean, she was just phenomenal. And another thing 
and that I pointed out in, in my article about her that, you know, I think is a really underrated part of her sort of game. You know, what she does is that she's really solid on the defensive end. And she averaged 1.5 steals per game in that last season. That was second to only Dez on the roster. She averaged 5.1 defensive rebounds per game. Again, second to only Dez on the roster. And, you know, like we said, with, with Dez leaving for Rhode Island, you know, and she's sort of leaving a hole, there's a big opportunity for, you know, a lot of players to really step up and help replicate that production, step up. And I think that's a big thing that, uh, Andres Finoza Hunter can do this year, you know, because we know she's going to be an absolute flamethrower about me on the arc and she's going to shoot the ball at an incredibly high flip and score. But if she can really step up, which I absolutely think she can, and, you know, become a, an elite defender on the opposite end and, you know, start pumping her rebound numbers up more, I think she's absolutely going to be, at the end of the season, one of the best, big, one of the best players in the Big East. I mean, if you just look at her stat sheet, and I think she's going to be an absolute contender for Big East Player of the Year. And, I mean, she's going to play a huge role in leading this Pirates team for the upcoming season, which I'll now, we'll, we'll, we'll now get into that as well, which is looking forward ahead to this Scene Hall women's Pirates team for next year, because the future is really bright, again, on this side too, like it is for the men's side. And Desiree Elmore is going to be leaving, but, you know, a lot of other players are going to be returning. Again, like the men's side, there's a lot of good talent coming in, and especially on the transfer side for this women's basketball team. You've got transfers like Katie Armstrong, Ariel Cummings, Sydney Cooks coming in. So with all that said, looking forward to next year, what player, be it a new transfer, be it just someone else on the roster, who are you most excited to look forward to? And, you know, someone who you could really see stepping up this next coming season and really putting – the rest of the Big East unnoticed on to who they are as a player. Um, I think just across the board, there's obviously so many just based on um, the transfers. And I mean, just from the, the supporting cast last season, there's a couple with like Maya Brembry just comes to mind first and foremost, just as a player that was a transfer herself from Penn State and, you know, making eight starts and being such a good, you know, defensive presence off the bench, almost a little, um, you know, to spark off the bench and being able to, contribute some key minutes and just being great rebounding defensively. But I just think from what I've been reading and just seeing just the transfers that they did get, I'm looking at Katie Armstrong when they got from Fairfield and she is a, I think could be a potential star. Um, she played the last three seasons at Fairfield. She averaged at least 10 points per game um, for each of the seasons. You know, there was the second season out of the three, she was top 10 in the Mac and points per game at 14 and rebounds at seven. So, you know, they're just adding another scorer and, and rebounder because obviously with, with, with Desiree Elmore not being able to, to, to be there next season, they're going to need to have some sort of, you know, I guess, filler for the rebounding department of, you know, will Andre Espinosa Hunter be able to fully take on that? But having some more players just to really potentially help out that it would be great too. You know, just, just so many great stats from her. She was the leader on the rebounding for the last eight games of the season. She set a new, a new career high in rebounds last season at like 17. So she's capable of having these big breakout games, like almost like Desiree Elmore used to have. And, you know, coming from Fairfield, obviously the MAC is tough, like any other conference, you know, and at 6'2", having some size as well. I'm really excited to see how she's going to fit in on this team. Um, is she going to be a starter right away? Will, will, they, will uh, Tony Bazella use her off the bench a little bit? But I just think overall she's going to make an impact from day one on this team, just from having a, the proven track record, almost like Andres Mendoza Hunter had already. Obviously, 
she played for UConn, Mississippi State, and obviously, you know, UConn, you really can't compare UConn to Fairfield, but having just, you know, a great career under her belt, she played at St. Joe's before at Fairfield, and having a pretty, you know, pretty successful college career up until this point, I think we should expect a lot from Katie Armstrong next season. Yeah, and um, Katie Armstrong is definitely going to have a, a big impact, but I'm looking at Sydney Cooks as, as the transfer that I think is going to have the, the biggest impact on the Pirates next year. Like, um, I think the goal, the biggest goal, like clearly, was to, to add some, some, some size to the front court, you know, because that was definitely apparent in matchups against uh, UConn. Like, you know, they have players like Olivia Nelson and Dota and Aubrey Griffin, Avina Westbrook. Like, they had a bunch of size on that team last year, just even some of the reserves. So, you know, when you face off against a team like that, you know, it's tough to, to rebound or do anything contest shots because everyone's just so much bigger than you so you know when you look at who the Pirates added you know in the previous offseason then you look at who they added now you know size was definitely a, a big factor you know Ariel Cummings she's 6'2 I think Joe's going to mention her you know if I try to predict um Sydney Cooks I believe she's 6'4 Katie Armstrong is 6'2 as well so he's getting a bunch of size in that front court when I think Alexia Lesh is leaving the squad Desiree Elmore is leaving as well. So, you know, you really just needed some some new blood in that, that, that the front court. So Ariel Cummings, obviously, excuse me, Sydney Cooks, I should say, a great player, former five-star prospect. Um, I think she was the number five overall ranked recruit in the nation coming out of high school, former McDonald's All-American, Wisconsin Girls Basketball Player of the Year. Like, she's got that, that high school uh, pedigree that Andre had, you know, and, and, you know, obviously up to this point, you know, Sid hasn't really been that, that huge player at the next level that they thought she would be, but she's still, you know, those two years at Michigan state, you know, she played really well her sophomore season. She shot you know, almost 41% from three, you know, in that one year at Mississippi state, you know, with she spent some time with Andre and they were former teammates. She definitely increased her three-point shooting as well. So losing Alexia Lesh and then being able to ask someone like Sydney Cooks, who I think will be the starting center, center next year, you know, just like that, you lose one floor space with the five and you bring in another one. And she can protect the rim and she can, you know, get in the pass lanes like Alexia Lesh could as well. So I'm excited to see Sydney Cooks, to say the least. Yeah, I mean, both of the players you guys mentioned, I mean, are going to be absolutely fantastic for this Pirates team. And, you, you brought her up, and that is Ariel Cummings, so I'm going to talk about a little bit of here. I mean, she's another player who, I mean, especially with, you know, the, the holes that this Pirate Josh is going to have a little bit with players like Des leaving, she's going to have a huge opportunity to step up. And with, with Ariel Cummings, you know, sort of the story with her, she, she started off and played two years at Chipola Community College, and then went to West Virginia for the past season and didn't do much at West Virginia, only played in nine games, averaged 0.4 points per game. And then now is transferring to Seton Hall to join this squad. But if you look back at her, at her stats from Chipola, I mean, they are incredibly eye-popping. 14.5 points per game, 11.4 rebounds per game. I mean, averaging a double-double. If she can play up to that level on this team, you know, it, 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 she's got the potential to be a double-double machine on any night. She's going to play a huge, huge role. And I mean, it's just going to add even more help down low for this Pirates team. 
Another name, though, that I also want to mention is not a transfer, but someone who's actually already on this Pirates roster who, I mean, for me at least, I've, I've got her name circled, and I'm really looking forward to see what she can do for just this next year and her coming years at Seton Hall. That's McKenna Minter, who this past season was a freshman for the Seton Hall Pirates team. And again, looking at her stats at first glance, you know, it doesn't pop out anything crazy to you. 3.1 points per game, 0.6 rebounds per game, and 7.3 minutes per game, only played in eight games. But in, in the short amount of time that she played, and, you know, in some of the games we've seen, she's shown some real, real solid basketball. She had on December 8th against St. Peter's a career-high 12 points on five for six shooting. That was in the season opener, you know, for this Pirates team. She's someone who, as a freshman, is not going to, you know, have a whole lot of responsibility, you know, the focal point of an offense or anything dumped on her out of the gate. And especially with the talent that this Pirates team had this past year, they had a big three who were dominating the scoring load and, you know, taking over everything. For her to still be able to sort of shine through like that and have a game where she goes off for 12 points and, you know, can still play some solid basketball throughout the season as a freshman on a pretty stacked roster, that really jumps out to me. And I think, you know, as some of these players leave and, you know, she starts to get older and older and, you know, get, gets more responsibility in this offense and on this team, I think she's someone who really, really can wind up breaking out and becoming one of the next, you know, central pieces of this Seton Hall women's basketball roster. So, I mean, again, with all the talent that's coming in, the steps forward that some of these players are going to take, the returning talent, I mean, just it's going to be an awesome, awesome season for the women's basketball team this coming season. And so this is going to lead me into my next sort of, you know, discussion point slash question for the women's team in regards to next year, which is just flat out, what are your predictions and anticipations for what this women's team can do next year? I'm excited. I'm definitely excited to watch them. I feel like the the landscape of the Big East is is shifting to say the least. I mean, UConn, they're they're probably going to go undefeated. Like it sucks to say, but they're bringing in the number one player in the nation. Avina Westbrook came back. I don't think they lost. I think Kristen Williams is coming back too. I think like, I think they brought back everyone from from last year. They're definitely utilizing that 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 free uh, season. So it sucks that, that they're going to be as stacked as ever, but, uh, I know DePaul lost a few pieces. I know Selena lot left from Marquette as well. So there's just a, a lot of changing factors, you know, meanwhile, the pirates, yeah, they lost Desiree Elmore and, you know, some other players as well, but they still have two thirds of that, that big three. You know, you get three players on the all Big East team, like that's impressive, regardless of the sport. And then you bring in a former highly touted recruit like Sidney Cooks, and you have another season of development for for players like Maya Bembry and Amari Wright, you know, who just had their, their first player in the pirate system and played extremely well. And then like you mentioned, McKenna Minter and just younger players as well. I mean, we saw a lot from this team. We saw a lot from this team last year several stretches that show they can string together those wins and, and that show they can be a threat to any team on any given night, you know? So next season, I, I easily see the Pirates being contention for one of those top three Big East spots. If Des came back to the squad, they would have been top two, just I think without contest. So it's going to be interesting to see how they stack up against DePaul and Marquette next year, you know, both rosters shifting 
just as much as the Pirates have. And uh, yeah, those games are circled on the schedule like they are every year. That's very true. Have, uh, I, the game that I'm going to have circled is they better beat Creighton this year. Just hopefully they sweep them or just something just because of what happened last season. But I, I'm just going to echo a couple of your points. Just the fact that they're in a very good spot right now. Like you said, the Big East is fluctuating with, you know, some of the town leaving and staying. Like you said, UConn is just UConn. They're just going to be number one in everything. They're going to beat everyone. Maybe they'll have a shot to potentially upset them. If UConn is going to lose to any team in the Big East, I think with putting our personal biases on the side, I think the Pirates do have arguably the best shot to do beat them because I remember beat reporting that game where um, the second game that they played against UConn last season and they were, you know, down to the wire, at least in the first half. And then especially a little bit in the second half. And then unfortunately Paige Beckers just was Paige Beckers. So I think they definitely will have some chance to, chances to maybe, you know, knock off UConn, but I think they will have another excellent season. Again, the identities with this team is already established. So that's half the battle. I feel like with, with, with many college basketball teams, you know that the big three is now the big two or the, now it's a dynamic duo, but you know, you still have, you know, like we talked about before, some of these players, Maya Jackson coming back, um, like we all the transfers, just everyone across the board, you know, Tony Bazell is of course still the coach. Just to be a lot of the same makeups of the team last year, just without Desiree Elmore. So I think they're in a very, very good spot. And, you know, we know the offense is going to be there. And now there's already obviously a little couple of question marks about the, the defensive side, just because Desiree Elmore, again, could, you know, block shots and steals. But I think that's going to be picked up by a whole bunch of players and not just once and specifically. And like you mentioned, Joe, if, if Andre Espinosa Hunter can become a defensive threat too and a true two-way, you know, forward, she could potentially win Big East Player of the Year. Hopefully we can start that trend here at WSLU Sports. But I think that they're going to be in a good spot. I think some goals that they could set is obviously advancing past the first round of the Big East tournament next year. I think a, a potential, you know, a full successful season just based off last year to this year is they make it to the championship game against UConn. I think if they can make it there, then it'd be a true successful, you know, bounce back season. But I, again, they just got to string their wins like they did last season as well. And I think they're, again, they're in a very good spot and it's going to be just an exciting, you know, th three or four months of just, you know, the Andre Espinosa, Hunter and Lauren Park Lane show. Yeah, I think you said it, you, you, you really hit the nail on the head, Jonathan, with, you know, the identities are sort of, you know, solidified for this team. And there's not much question in regard to that because, you know, we know Andre Espinosa, Hunter is going to be one of the leaders. We know Lauren Park Lane is going to play phenomenal point guard play for this team. And that's what's going to, you know, lead this roster. And, you know, it's just going to be who can step up and, you know, sort of fill that void of Desiree Elmore and, you know, who else can take a step forward. And I think just, you know, we've hammered at home with the amount of talent that is on this roster outside of, you know, Lauren Parkland and Andres Espinosa hunter there, There's so much, I mean, there's conceivably, I think, seven or eight players who could take a huge leap forward and wind up putting themselves into potentially a conversation to make a new big three along with, you know, Andre and Lauren. So, I mean, so, so exciting to, to look forward to this Scene Hall women's uh, basketball team for next year. Hopefully they are able to sweep their way into the NCAA tournament, which, I mean, I thought they should have made the tournament this past season, but they didn't. They didn't get selected by the committee. Like Hev said, they turned down the NIT bid. But I think there are big, big things coming for this women's team. And so with that said, that's going to wrap up this first inaugural episode of Pirate Recap. We recap the men's basketball season, the women's basketball season, and hopefully we got you a little excited and, you know, get those gears turning for next year for both of those teams. 
with all that being said, I've been Joe Matthews alongside, I mean, just fabulous as always, Heaven Hill and Jonathan Height. Special shout out to the producer for this episode, Jory Mickens. Be sure to stay tuned to all the podcasts we have here in WSU Sports. There's a whole, whole wide range of, you know, fantastic content coming out. And especially for the next episode of Pirate Recap, a little tease. It's going to be about a certain soccer team that had a pretty nice run this past season. So with that being said, thank you so much for listening, and we'll catch you around.